midday knowledge. Hello, my name is Nus Pramartiwane and I'm a program administrator at the Center for Student Leadership, Experiential Education and Citizenship, Federal Francais Slabert Institute for Student Leadership Development at Stellenbosch University. And welcome to our third podcast. This podcast was pre-recorded as part of our midday knowledge sessions and the topic was, can everyone succeed in education? Can technology improve both inclusivity and standards? Presented by Dr. Rob Stead, who's a senior lecturer in molecular biology at the University of Cape Town. Um, so just a little bit of background on Dr. Rob Stead uh, this afternoon. So Rob was born in Peter Maritzburg, a KZN resident, or coming from that side of the, the country, and background in um, BSc and chemistry, bio, biochemistry, now working as a senior lecturer in molecular biology at UCT. And really, um, what's so exciting, Prof said about the, or Dr. said about the work that you are doing is how it links to really looking at experiential learning as, as a driver for change. And we are really excited to, to learn more about this through your practical um, insights and, and um, presentation this afternoon. So please uh, share with us, and we are so delighted to, to have your presence this afternoon. Uh, as we know, you are also familiar to the Sleek family. You were part of the, the SUEC last year. So just a warm welcome into the space once again, and warm welcome to each and every DSAF staff member here this afternoon. Thank you for taking time out of your, your, your schedules and calendars and availing yourself for the opportunity. So thank you very much, and over to Dr. Stead. Thank you. Thank you, Kate, very much, and hello to everyone, um, and thanks for being here to share in these thoughts. Um, to start with, okay, so why, why am I here? Um, I, I mean, I could simply say there's the question. Well, I believe the answer is yes. Thanks so much. Good to know you. Goodbye. But you might feel a bit disappointed unless you had something more exciting to do and your boss told you to be here, in which case you might be quite relieved. But actually, I'm sticking my neck out here, I think, because I think I do have something to contribute to this question. I've been tinkering around with the question for over 40 years, and even at the ripe old age I'm at, I feel increasingly excited about where the question's taking us. But to start with, I'd like to go back to someone who asked this question about 35 years ago, and that's Benjamin Bloom. We, many of us know of him as Doyen of Educational Psychology, who led, his work led to a number of quite significant concepts that we still deal with today. His taxonomy of the cognitive domain, for example, he, he prior to that had outlined his understanding of mastery learning, and then in the in the late 80s, uh, he published this paper called The Two Sigma Problem. Search for methods of group instruction as effective as one-to-one -one tutoring. And um, you'll notice he's juxtaposing or comparing group instruction to one-to-one -one tutoring. So I think my my contribution to the discussion will to change that, shift that slightly, and say how can how can technology play a role in improving instruction to equate to one-to-one -one tutoring. Um, you might ask why he thought there was a problem. So let's move down to why he saw there was a problem. Just let's look at his experimental design. He had 
a a control group of normal, what you call lecture-based learning, and then two experimental groups, one in which he'd introduced mastery learning principles into the lecture-based learning. And in both those two cases, the control and the first experimental group, the ratio of student to teacher was 30 to 1. And then he, he had the second experimental group of individual tuition, one to one, using mastery learning. Okay. And as you can see from the averages, the means there, there was a considerable jump in performance going from experiment, from control to the two experimental groups. And the second experimental group at 98 was two standard deviations removed from the control group. So you saying, you know, you might have thought he'd say, wow, how exciting, uh, two sigma excitement, but he said two sigma problem, because it was, in fact, the logistics and, and, and economic problem. And he's saying, how on earth can we, we can't ever implement one-to-one, -one, so how on earth can we make the one-to-one -one success more able to be expressed in the conventional learning space? Let's unpack mastery learning just so we're on the same page. So there were two basic parts to it. The first was take a chunk of learning and disaggregate it into smaller pieces, roughly 20 to 45, 60 minutes, something like that. And um, then allow the student to go through a cyclic process of assessment, remediation, gathering more knowledge, trying again, repeated assessments, going through the cycle until eventually mastery is achieved. In other words, you're not waiting for some time to expire. You're saying keep going until you achieve mastery. And then within that was the broader concept that individual pieces of mastery could add up to mastery over the whole, the whole domain you're looking at. Okay, let's move on from there. And um, so that comes to my story, because round about the time that Bloom was enunciating his mastery learning concepts, I was looking around for some solutions because as senior lecturer, by the way, Kate, I, I'll tell you this now, I, I no longer senior lecturer in biochemistry, that was from the 70s. I was, I was doing the academic thing and loving what was happening in biochemistry at the time, genetic code is being uncovered, all sorts of exciting stuff. And I loved this, the third year small class lectures. They were just exciting engagements. But then, like all staff members, I had to earn this in my salary by, by teaching some of the first year courses, and including so-called service courses, which was attempted, attended by a motley group of people, not because they liked the subject, because they had to. And so that was the part where I began to think, is there a better way of doing this? Maybe I'm basically lazy, but I thought, can we actually start to implement some different principles? Can we re-engineer a particular course? And can technology play a role? Now, you have to understand in those days, technology meant the computer, singular, where you walked inside the computer and you didn't have it on your lap or in your hip pocket. And so, the technology was extremely fudgy, but still, you know, the question was found, are there ways in which we could use it? And 
the the results were really quite astonishing. This this course went from zero to hero. It was voted the best course in the faculty for five years running. Why? Well, we just you know changed the power dynamics and changed it into something that students really enjoyed doing and excelled at. And that uh, turned out to be fatal for my academic career because I left academia round about then to say, I want to be part of this new discovery and see how we can make it more relevant to the wider world. So that led to my spending time from the 80s to 2010 as a very busy customer developer for corporates, both here and in the UK, quite a wide range of clients. Never very satisfying because corporates aren't actually interested in training per se. They just see it as a means to an end and do as little as they as they have to. But still, we could see then that this, these similar principles were making a huge difference, especially to people at the lower end of the spectrum. And corporates are likely to call untrainable, not 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 publicly, of course, but to to one another. And, and we could see that properly designed technology-based courses could provide an alternative way forward for young people who had come from a disadvantaged background. So that led to the next phase from 2010 to the present of moving from training for the few where there are plenty of resources to training for the many where there are very few resources. And setting up training centers in rural towns and villages around the country. And so, so names like Willowvale, Valley with Hazen Hills, Silakal, Kundraman, Kimberley, etc., etc., were all places where we, we learnt to become involved, to find ways to see if we could change the lives of young people in those areas. And let's just stop for one moment and, and let it sink in. For some, they might be more familiar. For me, they were not. They were just names that appeared as I whizzed past along the freeway. And now I never thought of turning in there and finding out who lived there. And generally, everybody is poor, apart from the few who have jobs. Generally, those areas are dominated by a few authority figures that are political or, or business type figures who control everything. So generally young people feel disempowered. They can't see a future themselves. They can't see a path forward. So a very different kind of environment to the one we've been involved in. Yeah, I call this a crisis in the making because you can see um, we were working with the four million young people in the brown segment who are not in employment educational training. There are many more in even in the more urban environment and we just chose those areas to work with to see can we make a difference even in those environments. As time has gone on, it's spread into more peri-urban environments like Soweto. And um, but at the starting point, it was very much in those rural areas where the prevailing mindset is of disappointment and fear of failure, 
disempowerment, almost thinking, what can I do where I can't fail? You know, finding alternatives which are not in any way aligned to who I am and what I would like to do, but just give me anything as long as I can't fail. Often heard that spoken literally. Okay, so this is where we switch. I just want to give you a taste of the, taste of the program itself. Kate, I see a, an open share tray here. Can I try that? Will that allow me to share a screen? Yes, I think so. Correct. Let's go for it. See what happens. Can you see a menu in front of you? Yes, got it. Perfect. Okay, just to give you an idea of what this course was, it's a three-month Introduction to Computers course, and uh, all built around a, a large menu structure. You'll see on the left a user guide and introduction, then two modules which are basically conceptual, basic, uh, basic concepts of IT, using computers and file management, then four modules which are simulation-based, heavily simulation-based, are to to word processing, spreadsheets, presentations, and information communication. So I've opened the basic concepts, and you see within that, we've got a number of things, including a module test at the end, but I've gone into IT and society in a changing world, and just for fun, I'm going to drop into what I think is quite a cool introduction to the fourth industrial revolution. Give me five minutes, and we'll just go through that. So there's the first industrial revolution, invention of steam and the steam engine, and what that did to early factories, coal-fired steam engines, things done cheaper, better, faster. Second industrial revolution began in the late 1800s, production of scientific management to get the best production out of factories. See what we're doing, we're just giving chunks of information with a bit of visual support. And um, introduction of the Model T Ford, great deep in productivity on the production line. Rather than moving people to the work, the work was moved to people. The picture. And by the time it's perfected, 1920s, Ford is moving one car out of the factory every 32 seconds, which is quite amazing. And the third industrial revolution with the computer being introduced, Internet of Things, animation, robotics. So third covers quite a lot of what we sometimes think of as the fourth. And the fourth is actually the way in which all of those more recent developments change the way we do things. And it's not so much about new technologies, it's how they bring about the change of the way we live and work, how we get to where we need to go. So Google Maps is third, but fourth is where Google Maps knows where we are at any one moment and where everybody else is and can plot our best routes and, of course, paving the way for driverless cars. That's fourth industrial revolution stuff. And then almost totally automated manufacturing, but then exciting things like moving products in an automated way. And, of course, 
3D printing and the implications of that for the future small-scale manufacturing. Individual parts being constructed as one part and able to be created anywhere on site. And unique products which we can choose being produced for the same price as mass-marketed, mass-produced products. Factories happening anywhere, not just in a few isolated environments. Okay, I'll leave you on much longer from there. Let's just go back to the menu. You get the idea. Chunks of information here at the end of this roughly 30-minute chunk is a quiz. As you see, then a module test, which will probably test a week's worth of work before we finish basic concepts. Okay, I'm going to try switching now. Are you seeing a completely new screen? Okay. Yes, it's a wide Great. screen now. Good. So this is the other end of the scale. This is data, okay, which is almost as important as the first part you saw. What you saw there is the training happening anywhere, okay. Here you're seeing data from the training available anywhere. So here I am sitting in Cape Town, and I can see there's a lady who's actually doing her training from her home in Kailiche. So I can see exactly what this young lady has done, when she did it. The histograms are green when she's crossed the 80% boundary, red when she's still working on it, how many attempts she's made. I'm scrolling down, and she's moved from the first module into the second. Here's word processing. And here at the bottom is what she did yesterday. I can see it just before 12 o'clock she finished that quiz in word processing and to 89%. So that's that's one and I'm quite sure one of the most important aspects of where we are now. Being able to have remote training but real live up to the minute tutoring if you like. We come to that a bit later. Okay, so let's switch back to where we were. Super. So you've got the idea of the training program, but the setup involved finding an entrepreneur and finding ways to enable that person to find premises, to find computers, to build credibility in the community, to be able to provide facilitation and support to students, to become a trustworthy presence, to manage the financial aspects because he was charging them a small amount to do this training program. We, on our side, provided the training, designed around mastery learning, the competency targets, the simulations rooted in real experience, a lot of freedom, very little control exerted by the computer, not forcing them to go anywhere, but giving them the freedom to choose what they would like to do next, etc. Like facilitation and, a, and, and a, a low authority structure, quite important. Relaxed, no, no stress, no pressure. Let's move on. So what happened? From the very beginning, 
to this whole 80% threshold thing? Well, the, the, the students would say, and I would say something like 90% of the students who've done this course are women. And the young woman would say, well, we would say something very rude in our own language, which meant, you know, something like, you've got to be joking. Come on. You know, 80%? No way. We're 30% people. And then that last is symbolic of quite what would happen slightly further down the line. So hang on, what if we all do well? Are you going to shift some of us down? Okay, reference to the Gaussian curve. Are, are, are our results going to stay real or are we going to be disadvantaged once again by some official who shifts us down? Interesting questions, I think. Let's move on. The facilitators quickly learned to play it cool. Relax, you can do it. But to keep reinforcing, you can do it. Keep trying. Failing is not a problem. Just don't give up. Okay, so looking back over the 10 years of this experiment, what do we find? Next one, thanks. Okay, my first fear in starting this whole project was the students wouldn't cope. Because as I think you've seen, there's a lot in it. It's not, it's not light, it's fairly demanding. And um, yet 90% is, is the sort of average score that they've achieved. But more importantly, the um, completion rate is 90%. So we don't cream out a few at the top and leave the rest to founder. We've, we've seen most people coming through. And when you look at the metrics on inside it, 140 assessments, they will have encountered something like 3,000 questions, 17,000 simulation steps, all heavily randomized. So doing it again doesn't mean you see the same thing again. So, hmm, you get the feeling something's happening. Let's move on. Let's do a frequency distribution, a la Bloom, and see what it looks like. Well, here you can see, I mean, it looks suspiciously like Bloom's third group. Not quite as high, but definitely well clear of the 80% target. I find that one of the most fascinating things. I really thought we'd have a clustering just about the 80% mark. Sure, made it. Uh, let's move on. Because remember, this red line indicates where people, students, decided to call it today. They weren't forced to stop at any point. They just said, okay, that's my target. And so those bumps might actually represent, you know, targets that students set themselves. We still don't know at this stage. Okay, let's move on. Right, so now there are two views of the learning process. I've zeroed in on one, one class from, from the Centre in the Valley Trust, KZN, Valley of Thousand Hills. Students arranged on the bottom. These are individual scores we're looking at now, not, not group scores. And, yeah, the scores themselves present that rather boring picture of everybody's made it. Um, but now, next one, Kate. Now, if we look at the other side of the coin, we also collect information on how many attempts students made for every one of those 140 assessments. And, and the students are sorted on the basis of that effort figure. 
And so look what we find, and this is a very reproducible picture from this group to group. On the left are what we would call the quick achievers. They got through without breaking a sweat. Um, in the middle, those who worked harder, they're now up to averaging three. And then in the, the third of the class on the right, what I would call the persevering achievers, who have tried much harder, up to five times in this class, but in another class that can reach up to 10 times. So think about that, about that five times only 40, that's over 700 assessments they've put themselves through. That's a lot of work in anybody's book. And, and it's just a fascinating figure, which we've seen reproducibly coming out of this particular setup, this particular demographic, this particular choice of subject material, etc. But does this have more significance? Interesting question. Let's move on. So what kind of comments do we get? And I've put the one that excites me most. Joseph Mondo, who runs a very successful center in Soweto, says this training is addictive because he he runs three sessions a day, and so he's got to, after the first session, move people off and get the next group in. They don't want to stop, he says. They're busy doing what they're doing, and they don't want to give up. So I think never in my wildest dreams do I think training could ever be regarded as addictive. Maybe he's overstating it, but even so, it's exciting to me. And then the other one from uh, St. Owen in Kimberley, why don't you set the standard higher? You know, because I thought 80% was almost unattainable. And here, students have shown they've gone well clear of that. They're only starting to call it quits above 85. What if we went to 85 or 90? Interesting question. Students say things which are related to, I think, to losing their fear of failure. I've learned that failure is my friend. Every time I get something wrong, I learn something more. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that for a mindset? I can do anything as long as I never give up, and so forth. Okay, let's move on. So I'm venturing the thought that what we're seeing here is a shift in motivation. I think somehow, we're moving from extrinsic to intrinsic. So when they're internalizing their motivation, which then enables them to see a future of themselves as long as they persevere. My son, who's also in this field, who works in, in Cambridge, said, this, of course, is the holy grail of all educators, parents, universities, etc., to move people from extrinsic to intrinsic motivation. So are we touching on something in that area? Let's chat about that later. Let's move on. So here's an example of intrinsic motivation. Here's a lady called Vivian, Lucia Nicole, who's an ECD teacher, decided in May last year that she she couldn't teach because of lockdown regulations. So Maybe she should further herself in some way. 
never used a computer before, arrived at the center in Senegal and said, you know, can I learn to use a computer? And yes. And she was showed, shown into the training room, which was next door to an internet cafe, which is what this entrepreneur, Richard, how he operates, which is quite a good model. So he's not present in the training room. He's just next door, in a sense, which figuratively and, and literally, I think, is probably the best way of seeing um, facilitation in this context. So she was set up and told about the 80% standard and left to work on her own. And then a day or two later, she came through to Richard and said, okay, I've got the 80% bit, but what's stopping me from getting 100%? And he said, nothing at all. You just have to keep trying. Okay. Um, so now you can begin to see what was happening. So we only got this data at the end, of course, but looking back, we could see what was going on. So another question she raised a couple of weeks later was, okay, has anybody ever got 100% for everything? And you can think, what does that represent in terms of self-motivation? And he said, I don't think so. In fact, nationally, over 10 years, something like four or five people, and she was one of them. But that was enough for her. And so when we got the result there, you see this boring blue flat line with two slight rounding um, drops below, slightly below the 100. But basically, she got 100% on everything. Then you look at the red line, you see what the effort factor looked like. She started where the black area was because she thought she wanted to go where she was slightly more comfortable. And, and look at her number of attempts at the assessments in that early stage. Summing up, some, some of them 40 and one right up at 55 times. I thought to myself, can I ever imagine myself doing that? Could you imagine yourself doing that? Keeping going, keeping going. And, and she was the one who said, I've learned that whenever I get something wrong, I learn something new. Isn't that a fascinating motivator, self-motivator? I guess the critical question then is what happens next. And you can see somewhere into word processing, suddenly something shifts and she starts getting it right quicker, and so forth, until the latter part of the program, and then going all the way around to the beginning, and finishing up with that first IC, IT concepts, she was getting 100% on first or second attempt. Is that extraordinary? I still find it amazing. Okay, let's move on. So, we come back to the question, can everybody succeed? And if so, what are the factors? Well, just within this little study group, you could say, I think mastery learning as a principle has been a key factor because technology has made it possible to implement it on a wide scale because we were forced into it because there were no subject experts out there in these rural centers. There was no possibility of doing it any other way. But it seems to have been the key and the high expectations despite the initial reactions turn out to be a key factor i think low control by the computer quite often we encounter people in the technology space who 
are completely carried away by making the computer and make decisions about every small item about what a student is doing. I don't go with that. I don't subscribe to that view. And the same with facilitation. We definitely found it was critical for facilitators to adopt the kind of you know, part-time facilitator who motivated maybe a coach motivator model rather than anything to do with the subject matter. And also a low authority structure, I think is important. And I'm guessing, but I think extensive use of, of simulations enables people to visualize themselves using IT in the workplace. Because the examples are, you know, what if, you know, there's something from the workplace. So they were, in a sense, imagining how it would be to be in the workplace. This is entitled Still Too Much to Learn. I first entitled it Spectacular Failures, but I think it's more appropriate to say Still Much to Learn. We frequently encountered a situation where in trying to find select an entrepreneur, we found somebody, explained the concept, and we part of the setup training process. By day two, there'd be 10 people who would say, we're all in this together. We're a community. And Unfortunately, every one of those instances didn't work at all. Interpersonal strife came in as soon as the system started to work. It just posed too many problems and issues. And so, practically speaking, we've defaulted to waiting for an entrepreneur to come to us, having seen it working, saying, I think I can make it happen. And we move from there. But you could almost say choosing the entrepreneur is a big and challenging question for not just us, for many people. And then overbearing facilitation, we found that, I pitched it before, but the well-intentioned teacher or helper just somehow interferes and the, the monkey jumps off the student's back onto the facilitator's back and they default into passive mode Literally, it's too difficult, we can't cope, can't make it the same course, the same demographic. Um, so I think we, have, we feel quite strongly about that one. And we also run aground sometimes with sponsorship because it introduces a different dynamic. The owner needs the students to satisfy the donor, and the students pick this up and they say, well, then we're making you rich, so you must pay us because we're helping you to get rich. And they say, I don't even know where to go to to go with that argument, but it's there as some as so much so much to learn. So is this relevant to higher education? Because you, know, you might say, well this is very much skill centric. It's it's basic education essentially. And how relevant is it? And are there levels in higher ed, maybe first year level which could be relevant? Is there any possibility of it being relevant at higher levels? And so what if progress became individualized? What are the consequences? You know, are some of us going there already? Are we managing it? What can we learn? Because, you know, what if you could do your degree in a year and a half? How would that work? Are there more fundamental barriers, apart from those practical ones? And here I'd like to do a little thought experiment. Should we go to the next one, Kate? Okay. Think for a moment that you are 
you go back, Kate. Think for a moment that you're getting a recommendation from your professor or your dean and to say, you know, what how successful have you been as a staff member, student, whatever, right? And think of two groups of adjectives and choose which group you'd like to see on that recommendation. Okay, Kate, let's go to the first group. Talented, exceptional, extraordinary, top achiever. Okay, would you like to see that in your reference? Next group. Persevering, never gives up, hardworking. We won't take a poll, but I'm guessing most of us would choose the first group. Are we displaying a, a, a bias towards talent compared with effort? And I think most of us have that bias. I have it. The students have it. We've tried at a graduation ceremony rewarding those persevering achievers, and they were humiliated by it. So I think we all somehow carry this bias, thinking that talent is like easy, doesn't require any work. Now, we'd all love to be that kind of person. In practice, actually, it isn't quite so, but I think we have a bias in that direction. Angela Duckworth has done screeds of research and working on what she calls grit, passion, and perseverance. Passion meaning not so much flash in the pan, but a compass, a direction, a calling, something we're, we're aiming for and orients our life around. And perseverance, just not giving up, having not having giving up as an option. And you'll see from the quote below, you know, over large numbers, Andrew Luckworth has some solid research to indicate how these characteristics de determine how we turn out as individuals at the end. So this leads to the question, how do we define excellence? And how are we defining it at the moment? And could we find other ways to define it? What if students could regress at their own pace? And how do we go about rewarding both talent and effort? I don't know the answer to that. And maybe we can discuss it. Right, that's me done. I'd love to have some questions. So thank you for, for, for sharing those. If, if there's any questions, we, we can post them in the chat. I have the chat open. Uh, but just to get the ball rolling, I'd like to have got three questions, but I'm, I think I'm going to ask one which you may have answered already quite significantly. Is how does the use of technology play a role in experiential learning and teaching? That's the... Uh, First one, and um, the second one, is it still possible to use or facilitate experiential learning without technology in our day and age? And then is there, do you see a future for experiential learning in the higher education space? Thanks, Ramon. Oh, those are good questions. Um, so what role does technology play? And and. I think it plays a huge role in, because, let's take video, for example. We think of it as, and I think it's largely being used, used, I would say, abused in education as just the means of kind of putting the 
teacher in the students on the student screen in one way or another. <clears throat> I I think that's that falls short of what could be happening with video because I think video simulations have a huge role to play in creating an experiential environment for learners, which is coupled to open-ended decision-making. Okay, what we've been doing with our simulations are linear simulations, which are, the, in a sense, the, the lowest level of, of using them. So you step from, it's like best practice. Okay, how do you format a document? You click on this, you click on that, and then there might be other ways of doing it, but we just go along the way. Think of another simulation where you have a real-life video playing, and then it stops, and you've got to choose what to do next. And you've got five options, and there is no right or wrong. And you have to think your way into it, and you choose an option, and then you get the consequences of that option, and so forth. And after five or six or seven or eight steps, you've got yourself into a situation where you realize, actually, that wasn't such a good idea. And so you, you can then go back and rethink it again. I think that's a very powerful way of using technology in the sense that it offers realistic, real-life environment situations where there's no obvious right or wrong. And isn't that where we are today, where the rights and wrongs are not nearly as obvious as they might have been to our forebears? I think at our very simple level, as I mentioned, we're hopefully doing that by putting the students mentally into a situation where they're imagining themselves to be in an environment which is hundreds of kilometers away from where they are, which is beyond their knowledge, but they are becoming familiar with it. What about experiential learning without technology? I think it's, I'm not familiar enough, but I can see the way it's being practiced today within the ambit of experiential learning is, you know, literally enabling students to get into a different situation, change their experience. And so with creative uh, planning, I think that's very much a part of experiential learning. I think the two operate at different levels, you might say. I just think the future for experiential learning is the future. I think I'm almost totally dedicated to experiential learning. I think it is where we should be aiming. Where we're out of the era, I think, of just accumulating knowledge. And what I do, I'm, I'm surprised to think about is the, the, the parallel between skills and concepts and experiential learning. Because I think in today's world, we almost always have to be producing something. I don't think we can, there's very, maybe very few of us have the luxury of just being able to think and, and give our thoughts on things. We're all producing one way or another. I had a conversation with a with an actuarial student and said, well, tell me what skills you need. I mean, I imagine you sit there just playing with concepts. And he said, oh, no, 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 we, we have to develop huge skills in Excel. I thought, for heaven's sake, Excel, yes. You know, that's how they show, they give voice to their thinking. So I think 
It is the future for me. Thank you, Dr. Stead. If there's no questions, I don't see anybody posting in a chat, in, anything in the chat. Um, so we then will then proceed and like to say thank you. And then I'm going to hand over to um, our colleague, um, Nosi, who will then do the acknowledgements for us. I would like to thank uh, for such an interesting discussion um, and I'd like to thank all the colleagues for attending and, and to Kate as well for doing um, the introductory session for us and please remember that our next midday knowledge session is in June uh, so you'll get an invite for that and we look forward um, to seeing everyone and thank you again Dr. Steve for your contributions and your and imparting the knowledge on us for such an interesting topic as well. Thank you. Thanks, Nosy. Was that time for me to ask a question? Yeah, we have about five minutes. <laughs> well, I'd love to know if you think technology could play a better role in higher education. Certainly, yeah. You know, finish the question, sorry. Yeah, no, you answer it. Uh, I think um, my issue is always um, access and accessibility to those services, right? So it's all good and well for there to be these institutes and programs that run them, but it, it becomes a bit problematic when it's not really accessible by the people who, should, who need those services the most. So as you say, um, unemployed graduates in the townships or even um, just young people in the townships, and it's usually people who do have some sort of access to um, technological resources that are able to find um, those services. So how do you reach those that are certainly unreachable in the circumstance who don't have the necessary means to be able to access the information that there are um, programs out there for them, you know, to sort of assist them in the journey towards um, becoming um, 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 employable uh, people. Lovely, Absolutely. lovely. I totally, yeah. totally, totally agree. Yeah, and, and how do, how does one create that access? How do you find ways to enable that access? The future jobs, you know, I, I'm a great believer in the gig economy where the future of jobs could be, you know, people working from home, providing digital services to a marketplace out there, which is far from where they are. Yeah. No. But also the kind of people that you hire within those institutions, right? Mm. So if you're going to hire a predominantly um, privileged um, group of people who are not necessarily familiar with the ins and outs of people who don't have access to these kind of services, how are they going to approach um, um, trying to reach um, that crop of people who, who don't, um, who are just not aware? So it also speaks to the kind of people that um, these particular uh, particular institutions also hire, because you cannot hire people who are not familiar, um, nor know how to interact with, with people in certain mm. geographical areas, because we know that's a reality in this country, that mm. other people are sort of closed off from um, our realities and, and they are in a bubble. So that very bubble protects mm. them you know, in terms mm. of their work um, life, but also their home life. So how do those people um, learn how to import their own knowledge on other people when they don't really understand those realities to begin with? Would it not start then with educating those people in, in those institutes um, firstly? 
because it cannot be that just because you have an education and you have a degree and these particular set of skills that are technical that you're going to know how to engage with people who are different from you and to mm. come from very different circumstances. It's a big, big area. Absolutely. Thank you. Can I tell one story? What happens out there is sometimes more fascinating than you could ever imagine. Okay, here's an entrepreneur who decided he wanted to get involved in our program, come to Brantford in the Free State. And um, he started by, hiring, by doing a deal with a school to use their computers, and he would provide training to some of the students, and then the rest of the time he could use it to build his business, and then he gradually acquired a few computers, and then he was looking for a place to set up his business. And he came across the shipping containers just standing there with solar panels on it, and eventually discovered that that had been plonked there by the ANC prior to the last elections, but with no plan to how it would be used, you see. So eventually negotiated, and he got to own the thing. <laughs> and so then he discovered that the, the uh, inverter inside part of the technology wasn't working. So he closed it up, went and got a job, got together the money, fixed the inverter. Now he's got a lovely solar-powered training center of his own. I think, mm. <laughs> I mean, isn't that exciting? And you think maybe one way to start this is to persuade some corporate to just donate something yeah. like that and put them out there anywhere and see who comes, see who re see who responds. Somebody will. Because people are looking for opportunities. I don't think that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, they are. And we, we somehow assume they're not. And we should impl impose them. Thank you for listening to our podcast, and remember to follow us on Instagram at FEZS Institute, Twitter at FEZS, and subscribe to the podcast for bi-weekly uploads. Also, feel free to send us a message if you'd like to collaborate on an episode or if you're interested in one of our short courses. Thank you.